I'll be reading 2 Corinthians chapter 9. So, for it is superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely, that Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred most of them. But I have sent the brethren that are boasting about you, may not be made empty in this case, that as I was saying, you may be prepared. Lest if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to speak of you, should be put to shame in this confidence. So I thought it necessary to urge you, brethren, that they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift that the same might be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly shall reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully shall also reap bountifully. Let each one do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness abides forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality through which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. While they also by prayer on your behalf yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Heavenly Father, ever since creation, you've been giving and giving and when men sinned, you immediately promised another gift of your son. And then throughout the ages, you have given in spite of men's cursings and, and, and those of, of us who have failed you in giving back as we should, you have given and given. You're kind and gracious, and your gifts do last eternally. And that's wonderful. Thank you. Help us understand the heart of this passage, suffering saints, and those that God has blessed who can help others. Thank you, Lord. Guide Tom in his, uh, as he leads us and help us listen to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, brother. Good morning. I don't usually go for alliteration in my sermon title, so I, went, I just went overboard today. Uh, grateful, gleeful, gutsy giving grows gratitude toward God. And actually grows Godward gratitude. Travis helped me do that so I could eliminate the preposition that didn't match all the Gs. I added the word gutsy after I heard uh, Tim Keller talk about gutsy giving in an, in an excellent uh, sermon he did on this same passage. You'll notice that in that statement, gratitude is on both sides of God's paradigm for godly giving. One of the most uh, defining truths about life in the spiritual household of God is that gratitude is the overflowing fountain from which all true godliness 
arises. Gratitude is the overflowing fountain from which all true godliness arises. And by God's gracious doing, uh, gratitude begets gratitude in, in the body of Christ. It is uh, this marvelous reality to which Paul draws the attention of the Corinthian saints as he wraps up these two chapters on the matter of giving. Uh, Paul had sent Titus and two other faithful men, likely bearing this letter for the Corinthians as, uh, as an advance team to collect the gift that the Corinthian saints had, quote, previously promised to give for the support of uh, persecuted and impoverished saints in Jerusalem. There was a famine in Jerusalem and there, were, there was great persecution of both Jews and Christians in Jerusalem in this time. And all of that contributed to the poverty that was being experienced by the saints there. Um, in the last verse of chapter 8, Paul exhorted the Corinthian saints saying, openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love and of our reason for boasting about you. Now, in the opening verses of chapter 9, Paul explains why he has every expectation that the Corinthians will display their love for the saints through their generous gift. He says, for it is superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the Macedonians. Namely, that Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred most of them, stirred up most of them. Uh, I just told Jonathan that the correct pronunciation was Achaia, and then I said Achaia. It's because I'm Texan. If you ever hear anyone say the name of that, that second city, you know, it, when the Jews came across the river and they were taking possession of the lands, we pronounce it in Texas, we pronounce it AI. That is so far from the Hebrew, it's unbelievable. It's more like AI, but anyway, try, try that. <laughs> Texas, Texas pronunciations. All right. The city of Corinth, the city of Corinth was the capital of Achaia. So when Paul says, when Paul speaks of the preparedness of Achaia, a year earlier, he's talking about Corinth. Earlier in chapter 8, verses 10 and 11, Paul said, this is to your advantage who were the first, you Corinthians, who were the first to begin a year ago not only to do this, but also to desire it. But now finish doing it also. That just as there was the readiness to desire it, so there may be the completion of it by your ability. A year previous to Paul's writing of this letter of 2 Corinthians, when Paul first invited and encouraged many different churches throughout Galatia, Macedonia, and Achaia to participate in this gift for the Jerusalem saints, it was the Corinthian believers who stepped up to the plate first, who declared their intention to be part of this effort, and not just part of it, but, but generously, bountifully, Part of this gift. And Paul says they weren't, for, they weren't merely the first to agree to it, they were the first to desire to do it. They earnestly wanted to participate in this gracious work of God for His people, through His people. 
Now, <laughs> Paul tells the Corinthians that it was precisely their desire and their resolve to participate in this gift a year earlier and to do so bountifully that had stirred up the Macedonian saints so that they had an earnest and heartfelt desire to do the same. The saints in Macedonia wanted with great conviction of heart to do what the saints in Corinth said they planned to do, they intended to do. No local community of saints was in a better financial position to act on this excellent desire and commitment than the Corinthians were. I've said many times, Corinth is like Dallas. Corinth is very affluent. It was a, a hub of trade between Asia Minor and, and the rest of Europe, uh, and Europe as you headed west. Uh, it, was the, it was the waypoint. It was the, the central point for all that, all that trade. But Corinth was apparently the, on, the only church that had not followed through on this commitment. They were the first to say that they would do it, and they were the only ones that had not made any movement or appreciable movement on it. In verses 3 to 5, Paul says, But I have sent the brethren that are boasting about you may not be made vain or empty in this case, that as I was saying, you may be prepared, lest if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to speak of you, should be put to shame by this confidence. So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift. Your previously promised bountiful gift. That the same might be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. Now it's clear from everything that Paul says in these two chapters, chapters 8 and 9, that the readiness of the Corinthian saints to do as they had resolved to do a year earlier was already being undermined by greediness, covetousness. The use, uh, Paul's use of the word covetousness gets my attention here. I, I don't know about you, but I tend to think of coveting as wanting what someone else has. But the covetousness that Paul is talking about here that was driving the Corinthians to keep what they had committed to give to other Christians was basically that it was their desire to lovingly give had turned into a desire to selfishly keep. They hadn't even parted with the money yet. They weren't coveting what someone else had. They were coveting what someone else would have if they gave it to them. The fact that they had not parted with, any, with their money yet uh, in itself reveals a lot about what led to this disappointing failure. Uh, back in 1 Corinthians 16, when Paul first gave instructions to Corinth about this, this collection for the saints in Jerusalem, listen to what he said. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2. Now concerning the collection for the saints... As I directed the churches of Galatia, so you do also. And listen, on the first day of every week, let each one of you put aside and save as he may prosper that no collections be made when I come. There are four very valuable rules of thumb for giving in those concise instructions. First, 
Everyone gives something. Secondly, everyone gives in proportion to what he or she has received. Third, everyone gives what he or she has resolved to give. And finally, everyone gives regularly and without delay. Not after they've had a bunch of time to mentally spend the income on something for themselves. Each one sets aside his gift regularly and quickly when he is received from the hand of God. The Corinthians had not followed these simple guidelines and their failure to do so had opened the door for their readiness to turn into greediness. Debbie and I made it our goal years ago to apply the principle behind the first fruits offerings in the Old Testament when it comes to our giving under the New Covenant. In other words, to make our planned giving the first money that we spend at the beginning of each month after we get paid. We certainly do not have a perfect score in that regard, but we want our giving to be done thoughtfully, prayerfully, thankfully, and faithfully or consistently. We do not set up auto withdrawals for gifts to God and to God's work because even though an auto withdrawal makes the faithfully part real easy, it makes it way too easy to skip the thoughtfully, prayerfully, and thankfully parts. Now, I don't want to move on without addressing one possible concern about Paul's approach in, uh, in this passage, a potential concern. Paul has just sent Titus and two other faithful brothers to Corinth as an advance team to arrange with the leaders of that church for the collection of what he calls their previously promised bountiful gift. Paul now explains to them that he plans to come to Corinth personally after these other three men have been there for a little while, arranging all this with the Corinthian elders. And he says when he does come, he might be accompanied by representatives from the Macedonian churches. That should have gotten the Corinthians' attention. He sets before the Corinthians two, two scenarios for how that visit, his personal visit, might go. The desirable scenario is that when Paul arrives, likely accompanied by brothers from Macedonia, they will find that the Corinthians have faithfully followed through on their promise to contribute generously to this much-needed gift. The highly undesirable scenario is that when Paul and his friends arrive, they will find that the Corinthians have gathered very little for this gift that their previously promised bountiful gift isn't bountiful at all. In the opening verses of Acts chapter 20, it appears that when Paul came to Corinth for the third and last time on his way to Jerusalem to take this collected gift, he was indeed accompanied by three men from the Macedonian churches. Those men were Sopater of Berea, and Aristarchus and Secundus of Thessalonica. Just real quick aside, the word secundus means second. The word tertius, he was a co-author, uh, one of Paul's writers of his epistles. 
it means third. You know, when you see names like that, those are slaves. Those are slaves who are numbered by their owners instead of given names. Uh, throughout the New Testament, slaves have a powerful role in the unfolding of God's work. Now, remember that a year before Paul wrote this epistle, when the Macedonians had heard of the Corinthians' intention to give bountifully to meet this need of the Jerusalem saints, that news had so stirred the Macedonians' own hearts that they had, quote, begged Paul with much entreaty for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. Paul apparently had not asked the Macedonian Christians to contribute to this gift because the Macedonians, like the saints in Jerusalem, were in the midst of deep poverty. But the Macedonian believers had given, quote, according to their ability and beyond their ability, entirely of their own accord. They gave in a wealth of liberality, of generosity, out of Little, very little that they had. How utterly humiliating it would have been for the Corinthian saints if Paul had arrived in Corinth with these faithful Macedonian brothers only to discover that the Corinthians' previous, previously promised bountiful gift was not bountiful at all. That their love for money had shut down their resolve to love with money. It would be very easy to construe Paul's words in these, in these first five verses of chapter 9 as petty and manipulative, as if Paul were using the threat of public shame to coerce the response that he wanted from these saints. But Paul's motive is clearly stated. His motive for this very strong exhortation was an altogether loving motive. He wanted with all his heart to spare these Corinthian saints the, the humiliation and shame of that second scenario. His desire was that he and his fellow travelers would, would have cause to rejoice greatly together with the Corinthian believers because of the generosity that God had stirred up in the hearts of all the saints who were participating in this gift from all the different churches. In verses 6 and 7, Paul reminds the Corinthians of a simple and powerful truth about giving that should have made it a, a no-brainer for them to honor their earlier commitment. Paul says, Now this I say, he who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully shall also reap bountifully. Do we believe that? Paul isn't saying something new here. Nearly a millennium earlier, King Solomon wrote these words in Proverbs 11, verses 24 and 25. He said, There is one who scatters, yet increases all the more. And there is one who withholds what is justly due, but it results only in what? The generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. If you go to the last couple of pages of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 3, you'll find this promise that God made to Israel regarding the tithes that He commanded them to give under the law of Moses. These were not voluntary gifts. These were required gifts. 
Malachi 3, verse 10, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. And listen, and test me now in this, says Yahweh of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. The words test me now in this mean that God expects his people to hold him to this promise and to watch him fulfill it every time. You, you know, Jesus, Jesus said, you shall not test the Lord your God. And he's quoting the Old Testament. But there's a test that God's okay with. And that is when he makes you a promise, you get to hold him to the promise. Amen. The saints do that all over the Bible. But we will have no opportunity to watch God deliver on that promise if we don't give in the first place. Beloved, a clenched fist can neither give nor receive. An open hand readily does both. When we sow sparingly, God assures us that we will reap sparingly. And when we sow bountifully, God promises, promises us that we will reap bountifully. Do we believe this? There's one more condition that Paul presents here for a bountiful harvest. In 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7, he tells us that the measure of our gift in the eyes of God has as much to do with the attitude of our heart when we give as it does with how much we give. He says, let each one do just as he is purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You can give a fortune to the work and, and, and people of, of God, and if your heart's not in it, He doesn't want it. We reap bountifully when we give generously, and we reap bountifully when we give gleefully. That word I mentioned before, that word God loves a cheerful giver, the word cheerful is hilarion, from which we get the English word hilarious. God loves a gleeful giver. How do we know when we have given generously as God measures generosity? Well, this is where the gutsy part comes in. The first question that a diet-in-the-wool rule keeper like me asks when we come across a passage like this is, okay, Lord, tell me how much. Lord, I want my giving to be generous as you measure generosity, so just tell me how much. What answer does God give me? The same answer He gave to the Corinthians, the same answer He gives to you. His answer is, when you're giving looks like the Macedonians giving, you're in the right territory. In the first several verses of chapter 8, Paul told the Corinthians how the grace of God given in the churches of Macedonia had man manifested itself. He said, listen, he said, in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. According to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. Now God says to us, that's what godly giving looks like. 
I read all that and I say, that's really impressive, Lord. So tell me how much. And God says to me, when your giving is like the Macedonians giving, you'll be in the right territory. It's hard for rule keepers when God doesn't give us rules, but gives us principles and examples. How does the Macedonians giving help me determine how much I should give? Well, here are a couple of things that are very, very apparent about the, the pattern of giving that we see in the Macedonian saints. First, their giving went way beyond easy. Way beyond easy. This wasn't their spare change that they were giving. What they gave required a change in their standard of living, which was already among the lowest in all of the churches that participated in this gift. They gave out of their deep poverty. They gave according to their ability and beyond their ability. So first, their giving went way beyond easy. Secondly, their giving was an overflow of their abundance of joy. Instead of asking, Lord, how much should we give to meet this need? They said, Lord, please let us give a lot to meet this need. To them, a lot was a lot less than it would have been to the Corinthians. The Macedonian believers understood something that the Corinthian believers were still struggling to grasp and embrace. And I think that many, many, many Christians in the affluent West struggle to embrace, and I include myself. The Macedonian saints understood that there's actually no danger in giving dangerously. Some people live dangerously. This is about giving dangerously. And it actually turns out not to be dangerous at all. Macedonians got that. And that's where Paul takes us for the rest of the chapter 9. In verses 8 through 14, Paul explains why there's really no danger in giving dangerously. He explains that when we give generously, God multiplies both the harvest and the seed. Both the harvest and the seed. This is verses 8 through 10. God is able to make all grace abound to you. Listen to all the words that say always abound, that talk about lots and lots. God is able to make all grace abound to you that always, having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Does that sound like you're going to have what you need? As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness abides forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and will increase the harvest of your righteousness. A while back, uh, I went through a drawer full of random stuff at our house. We called it our junk drawer. Anybody have one of those? Yes. And I found a few unopened packets of seed for flowering plants that had been bought, that we had bought at some point in the past. Instead of decorating our garden with beautiful flowers, we were just decorating that drawer with pretty packages of seed. They had pictures of flowers. 
that no one would ever see. Is that why we bought that seed? Of course not. Did we buy that seed to decorate the dark corner of a drawer? No. That misses the whole point for buying a packet of seed. Well, how about the seed that Paul is talking about here? Do you and I work hard day after day so we'll have money to put in a dark place where it does absolutely nothing to bless others or to advance Christ's kingdom the whole time that we have breath? This goes exactly to what my brother John was talking about during the worship. Is that why you go to work day after day? So you can have money to hide in the dark? In Ephesians 4.28, Paul spells out for us God's intention for the work that He fills our hands to do during our earthly lives. He says, let him who steals, steal no longer, but rather let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good, in order that he may have something to share with him who has need. In order that he may have something to share with him who has need. The word share there is very important. Paul already told the Corinthians in chapter 8, verse 13, that the gift he was gathering was not for the ease of others and for their affliction, but by way of equality. In the same way, God's purpose for our giving, uh, let me put it this way, God's purpose for giving us the ability to earn money through our work is so that He might use us as instruments of provision for ourselves and for others. But beloved, we must understand that if it's just for ourselves, it does not fulfill God's purpose for your work or for your income. If it's just for you, you're missing the mark. If your life as a child of God does not include the habit of giving, generously and joyfully, then you are denying an indispensable part of God's clearly revealed purpose for your income. That applies to every single one of us. God intends that the money that we earn by the work of our hands will be seed for sowing, not seed for stowing. And He promises not only that He will magnify the harvest that He produces through our godly giving, but also that He will multiply our ability to give. Isn't that great? He, he promises His children that the more generously we give, the more He gives us to give. When you and I become grateful, gleeful, gutsy givers with our money, God multiplies to us all kinds of resources so we can keep giving. When you give your money generously and joyfully, the seed that God will multiply to you might take the form of more money. It might not. Bob has a great story. Bob Deffenbaugh has a great story about Glenn and Mary Beatty, career missionaries well known to many in this congregation who are now with the Lord. Many of you know that while they were missionaries and after they were in retirement, one of their favorite things to do was to help young men and women go to Emmaus Bible College. And they didn't just help logistically, they helped financially, even when they were missionaries. Years ago, Glenn bought a used pedal sewing machine 
for 50 bucks to give to Colin and Becca, his daughter and son-in-law who were on the mission field, because they did not have electric power in their home on the mission field. When Glenn got the old sewing machine to his house and he started to clean it up, he found in a compartment in the cabinet a bunch of Krugerrands. One ounce gold coins, a bunch of them. One of those today is worth 1800 bucks. There were a bunch of them. How did Glenn respond to this unexpected windfall? Without hesitation, he said, wow, it looks like another student gets to go to Emmaus. And he meant it. And that's what happened with that money. See, that's the kind of thing that God does to His children who hold loosely to material things. And to Glenn, that was an absolute delight. If you give generously of the money that God puts in your hand, the seed that He multiplies to you so you can keep on giving might take the form of more money. Maybe even a bunch of gold coins. Or it might very well take the form of something other than money. Chapter 9, verse 8, 2 Corinthians says, God is able to make all grace abound to you that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Does that sound like God is limiting this scene to the scenario to money? No. All sufficiency in everything. Covers a lot of ground. If you give generously and joyfully of your money, God may prosper your time. You might find that something happens with your job and now you've got more time to, to give to other people. He might prosper your expertise that would help somebody else. Your counsel, your knowledge of His Word, even your affection for the saints. I see a lot of spending in this body that isn't monetary and it's beautiful to see. In the case of the Apostle Paul, the seed that God multiplied to his account as he headed toward Jerusalem to, to gather and deliver this gift to the churches, the seed that God multiplied was courage. Even though he had been repeatedly told by the Holy Spirit that when he got to Jerusalem, he would be arrested and put in bonds, Paul was undeterred in his commitment to finish what God had started through him. And the harvest of that multiplied courage that God gave to him is still being multiplied in the souls of men and women and children today. God has all kinds of gifts to put into open hands. And when He finds a hand to be open, He fills it over and over and over again. If you haven't experienced that, Try opening your hand. Here in verse 10, Paul says God will increase the harvest of your righteousness. The righteousness that he's talking about there is on the sowing side. When you give generously and joyfully to care for the needs of your brothers and sisters in Christ, God sees that as a display of real righteousness that He has imparted to you. In Christ. And he multiplies the harvest that he produces through that righteous behavior. 
In verses 11 and 12, Paul says, you will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. When we give generously and joyfully, God multiplies our seed for sowing by enriching us in everything for all liberality. Not just money. And what kind of harvest does God produce through all the seed that He gives to us? Paul refers here to two facets of the harvest that God produces. First, God supplies the needs of the saints when we give generously. At the same time, God creates an overflow of many thanksgivings to Himself. He says it twice. Producing thanksgiving to God, overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Through our generous and joyful giving, God creates an, an overflow of gratitude toward Himself. At the, at the beginning of this passage, I said that gratitude begets gratitude. Overflowing thankfulness to God is on both the sowing side and the reaping side of godly giving. Paul ends this passage by bringing us back to the sowing side. The ground of all godly giving and the harvest of all godly giving is gratitude toward God. The root and the fruit of godly giving is gratitude for God's indescribable gift. What frees you and me up to give like the Macedonian believers? To be gutsy, gleeful givers? God's answer is wonderfully simple. Gratitude. Thanksgiving. What frees us from bondage to money and what liberates us to give joyfully and generously is gratitude to God for His indescribable gift to us. We have to know how rich we already are and how we got that way in order to really be liberated uh, from bondage to money. In 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, Paul said, for you know... Uh, let me just real quickly add... We have to know how much we've been given and how we got it. And we don't have to guess because God told us. And so Paul says, Paul says, for you know. Hang on, get, get my place back. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he became rich, uh, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor that through his poverty you might become rich. Now in the last verse of chapter 9, Paul says, thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. What gift? The gift of the laid down life of Christ that bought life, everything that is life indeed for us who believe in Him. When a Christian says, when a Christian says I'll start giving generously as soon as God gives generously to me, you know what God's answer always is? It's always the same. He says, I already did. If you want to see a ledger 
of what God already gave to you in Jesus Christ, read the first three chapters of Ephesians and get real, real familiar with those chapters. There's no mention of money in those chapters. And those chapters are all about the unfathomable riches of Christ. Lavished upon every single believer in Christ. None of those riches are monetary in Ephesians 1-3. through And all of those riches last forever. Beloved, we cannot be grateful, gleeful, gutsy givers if we're not grateful. And to be grateful, we have to rightly value what we have been given by God. I think that in itself is the, is the, the most foundational thing that derails us from godly giving is we don't rightly value the riches that God has given to us. Do we believe that the wealth that actually gives us well-being is measured in dollars and cents? Or do we believe that real wealth, that our real wealth, is the boundless love of God that He has already showered upon us in Jesus and that Romans 8 says no created thing can ever take away from us? People talk about financial security all the time. That's what you call an oxymoron. Money cannot make you secure. If you belong to Christ, you are as secure as secure gets. You are signed, sealed, and soon to be delivered into the very presence and kingdom of Almighty God for all eternity to live together with His saints in His presence. And nobody and nothing can ever take that away from you. That's the security that's real. Do we believe Jesus' promise in Matthew 6 that God will always give us the material provision that we need every single day of our lives until the moment that He takes us home? Do we believe God's precious and magnificent promises? If we do, beloved, we will live lives that are liberated from bondage to money. We will all see money as an instrument given to us by God to display His love to other people. This is not some isolated piece of the Christian life that we can deal with after we focus on the real stuff of godliness. This goes to the very heart of true godliness every single day of our lives. Listen one more time to verses 12 and 13 of chapter 9. For this, the ministry of the service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. When you and I generously and joyfully and sacrificially give to meet the material needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ, God calls that obedience to our confession of the gospel of Christ. Generosity in the use of material things is gospel living that produces gospel results. 
Generous giving is not merely one way that we might display the power of the gospel. It is indispensable to that display. Indispensable. If we are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and clinging to money, instead of adorning our message, we are denying our message. Imagine, brothers and sisters, what would happen in this world today if the world saw you and me practicing the very same grateful, gleeful, gutsy giving that took control of the saints in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 4. Read it. All that is necessary for that to happen is for you and me to believe that God actually means what He says. Dear Father, You have already given to us wealth beyond measure, beyond measure, through our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask You, Father, to give us eyes to behold the magnitude of that indescribable gift so that we will live and give out of the overflowing fullness that is already ours as the beloved children of the Most High God. We ask this in the name of and for the sake of our beautiful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.